Hello and welcome to All Gospel No Germs. You can follow us on Twitter or email us at allgospelnogerms at stlukesholbeck.org.uk. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this special edition of All Gospel No Germs. Today is Holy Saturday. It's the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's a strange day. It's a sombre day. It's a day that we often don't know quite what to do with ourselves. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read you a chapter from the book God on Mute, written by Pete Gregg. It was published in 2007 and his 10th chapter in this book thinks about Holy Saturday. It considers what we might learn and what we might need to remember about our walk with God and how Easter Saturday speaks profoundly into the way we grow as Christians and this is especially relevant at this time of the coronavirus pandemic. Exploring the silence. No one really talks about Holy Saturday, yet if we stop and think about it, it's where most of us live most of our lives. Holy Saturday is the no man's land between questions and answers, prayers uttered and miracles to come. It's where we wait, with a peculiar mixture of faith and despair, whenever God is silent or life doesn't make sense. As we turn to explore the silence of God, we are compelled to address the problem of unanswered prayer, more literally than we have done so far, examining the times when God simply doesn't reply to us when we pray. It's not that he's saying yes, no, or not yet to our prayers. It's that he's not saying anything at all. We pray and pray, but God remains silent. We ask for help and he appears to ignore us. We try to make sense of our situation and there is no explanation, no revelation, no intimation that God even cares. We may wonder if he's there at all. This experience of God's silence or even his absence is not uncommon in the Christian life, especially among those God uses most powerfully. It is an experience both epitomised and legitimised by the silence of God on Holy Saturday. What happened today on earth? There is a great silence, a great silence and stillness, a great silence because the king sleeps. A God who speaks and does not speak. The Bible opens with the voice of God. He speaks and life begins. It closes with what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting Hallelujah, Revelation 19.1. In between these two cataclysmic moments, the story hinges on the word of God spoken in Jesus. The Bible is a book about a God who speaks, but it does not portray him as one who speaks incessantly to his people, 
or to anyone else for that matter. Instead, we often endure Holy Saturdays in which God's word is muted and his presence is veiled. In the wake of his wife's death, C.S. Lewis experienced this sense of God's silence and began to wonder, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent to help in time of trouble? Human beings can endure extreme pain and many years of unanswered prayer provided they know God is present in the midst of it all and can say with the psalmist, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, 4. We may not understand our suffering at such times, but at least we have the comfort of knowing God's presence in the pain. But sometimes, instead of the reassurances of God's word in the darkness, we only hear the bolting and double bolting of the door, and after that, silence. As slaves in Egypt, the Israelites cried out to the God of their fathers, yet it would be 430 years before he spoke, saying, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Exodus 3, 7. These forgotten people, who surely grew up to question the dusty old desert legends of the Abrahamic covenant, these were the people who became the prime example in world history of what God can do, but it took the best part of 430 years. This seemingly unending stretch of the experience of the absence of God, writes Eugene Peterson, is reproduced in most of our lives, and most of us don't know what to make of it. When a man like Peterson says something, you really have to sit up and listen. Having spent decades studying every word of the Bible forensically in its original language, including seven and a half years working on his paraphrased translation, The Message, Eugene Peterson understands the broad sweep of scripture far better than most. And from that privileged position, he makes this extraordinary observation. The story in which God does his saving work arises among a people whose primary experience of God is his absence. The question that screams out from such a startling and depressing statement is simple and personal. Why? Why is God absent? At the end of Hudson's first year at school, his report proposed an interesting objective for future success. Aim for next year to reduce overall dependency on adult supervision. Reducing dependency on supervision is a spiritual process too. 
God is committed to helping us mature, and to do this, he sometimes withdraws from our conscious experience by deliberately making himself less obvious and less immediately available, and by allowing some of our prayers to remain unanswered. When the prayers of an entire nation were rejected, and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, Jeremiah observed of God, You have covered yourself with a cloud, so that no prayer can get through to you. Lamentations 3.44 Why does God wrap himself in such a cloud? Why does he withdraw when we need him? Has he become less concerned about our needs than he once was? No more than Hudson's teacher had become less concerned about his progress. No more than we, as Hudson's parents, will love him less as he needs us less and grows to maturity. But in our love we will, at times, withdraw and insist that he stands on his own two feet to face the challenges of life alone. Hudson is currently learning to ride a bike. We've taken the stabilisers off his back wheel and, as a result, he's wobbling all over the place, endangering himself and anyone within about 20 feet. I run along the road holding him, but I've noticed that he doesn't really try to balance as long as he can feel my hands on his back and see me by his side. He just leans into me and the bike proceeds perilously at a 45 degree angle. So I've taken to running with my hand lightly on the back of his seat so that he can neither feel me nor see me. He hates this. Sometimes he gets cross with me for not doing it the way he wants me to do it. A number of times he's announced that he doesn't want to ride a stupid bike anyway, but I know he'll get there eventually. The process is a little risky, though not nearly as treacherous as it seems to Hudson, but he's slowly learning an uncomfortable lesson as I withdraw my support. As long as he can feel me or see me, he will remain dependent on adult supervision, which in this case means that he won't learn to ride a bike. It's in my love for Hudson that I'm allowing him to get some scrapes and bruises. It's actually because I care that I'm refusing to answer all of his cries for help. If we can't see God in our situation right now and can't feel his hands on our life, we may feel scared, angry or helpless. Or we may want to just give up altogether. Where once we could lean on God and life seemed manageable with his help, now he seems to have abandoned us. But the Bible assures us that God hasn't left us even when we can't feel his presence. Quite apart from the fact of his omnipresence, Jesus promised never to leave or forsake us. On the cross, he endured complete forsakenness so that we would not have to. The Apostle Paul assures us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Bible leaves us in no doubt at all that when God is silent, he is not absent from his people, even if that's the way it feels. He is with us now as much as he ever was. He's no less involved in our lives than he was when we could hear his voice so clearly and could sense the joy of his smile. Instead, God has switched off for a while our ability to be conscious of his presence and he has done this in order to reduce our dependency on outward things so that we may learn some vital lesson of life. Martin Luther argued that God withdraws and falls silent in order to draw us into the deeper relationship with him that is only possible when we move beyond merely outward experiences and purely rational understanding. If Luther is right, then the silence and unknowing of Holy Saturday are essential to growing deeper in our relationship with God. The silence of God is intentional. 
is one of the great disciplines he puts on his children that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12:11. Such seasons are often described as the dark night of the soul, a technical term that comes from a work by the 16th century mystic St John of the Cross. In his usage, it means a very high degree of spiritual progress, one most of us will never see. However, the sense that prayer and scripture have ceased to resonate and that our spiritual journey is heading for a dead end is common to many Christians. It's different from boredom. We're not tempted to go back to frivolous pastimes. Something in us has changed and we are hungry for something that no earthly distraction can satisfy. Sometimes God removes the stabilizers from our bicycle and his hands from our frightened lives. As we grow towards spiritual maturity, every believer is granted seasons of unanswered prayer when God is silent and may even appear absent from the world. At such times, we may be sure that God is weaning us off adult supervision, but that he has not abandoned us altogether. The Miracle of Unanswered Prayer it is one of the great ironies of life that our unanswered prayers can be used to craft the greatest answers to prayer that we will ever experience. When we first become followers of Jesus, we often enter a phase of spiritual infatuation, not dissimilar to the overwhelming obsession of falling in love. There can be tears, fascination, joy and moments of deep intimacy. Our minds are full of God's wonder and our lifestyles naturally reprioritize around our new, all-consuming relationship with God. Infatuation can be a vital time in our early spiritual formation, launching us out with abandonment in passionate pursuit of Christ for the rest of our lives. But it cannot and should not be protracted. Many studies have been conducted into the powerful and delightful chemical urges that occur when we fall in love. One recent report even compared human behaviour at such times to a form of madness. If you've ever experienced it, it's not hard to see why. However, we know that infatuation, which appears so selfless, is in fact profoundly self-centred. You only have to listen to the words of every love song in the charts to realise that the emotion of infatuation is all about how you make me feel, what I would like to do to you, or what I want from you. Such caricatures of love barely compare with what they may one day become. The beautiful sight of an elderly couple walking down the street holding hands. Growing into maturity, whether it's in a romantic relationship, a child-parent relationship, or in a relationship with God, always involves a steady process of recentering from our own priorities and preferences to those of the other. That's why our centre of gravity shifts as we mature spiritually. We begin to pray that God would change our hearts and rewire our motivation. We long to become more like Jesus. We ask God to help us become more humble, more loving and more faithful. It's in answer to these very prayers that God may decide to deny our requests and even withdraw a little from our lives. As long as it makes perfect sense to serve God and to live for him, our faith can only mature so far. There's nothing very selfless or sacrificial in obeying God as long as it remains in our best interest to do so, enjoying his love, receiving miraculous provision, hearing his voice clearly, experiencing his reality and worship, gaining stimulating insights from the Bible, knowing God's comfort when we are hurting and so on. 
Until these things are removed from our lives and we are left to stand alone without any reason for continuing except steadfast loyalty, we cannot truly mature from an us-centred relationship with God to a truly Christ-centred one. It isn't until the facts that once reinforced our beliefs are removed from our lives that we can truly live by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 Rushing the Resurrection Although seasons in our lives when God is silent may be important in our spiritual growth, they can also be deeply disturbing. As a result, we often attempt to solve the problem of God's silence with simplistic explanations of complex situations, lopsided applications of scripture and platitudes of premature comfort. We are afraid to simply wait with the mess of problems unresolved until God himself unmistakably intervenes, as he did on Easter Sunday. We are unwilling to admit, I don't have a clue what God is doing or why this is happening. We may even suspect that it would be unchristlike to cry out publicly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why can't we wait with the mess and pain of Holy Saturday unresolved? I went to the funeral of a friend named Simon, who had died very suddenly of a heart attack, leaving behind a wife and four young children. It was unspeakably sad, especially as I watched his kids at the front of the church, pale as milk in their smartest clothes, trying to be so very brave and grown up and appropriate for us all, trying to make their daddy proud. One of the daughters played a piece on the recorder, another did a reading and her voice hardly faltered. Then the pastor stood up and invited a band to lead us in a time of worship. We all sang songs and, to my surprise, some of the people in the front row started dancing. I know why they were doing it. They wanted to celebrate the fact that Simon was in heaven and that God was in charge. In a way, I loved them for the sheer defiant absurdity of it all. But then I saw something that almost broke my heart. We were singing the song, Show Your Power, O Lord which had, according to the service sheet, been one of Simon's favourites, when his seven-year-old daughter turned her head and stared at the coffin. Show your power, O Lord, we continued as she just kept staring at the coffin. It was a simple thing, but, as I say, it almost broke my heart. A number of eulogies followed, and everyone said lovely things about Simon, one of the speakers explained how intricately God's hand could be seen in the timing of Simon's death. We believed him. We needed to believe him. But it seemed to me that for the four little faces on the front row, the timing could not have been more wrong. Their father had been this inevitable presence in their lives. He had been forever. Theories of death and providence no longer applied. Streets should empty. The Disney Channel should come off the air. In spite of all the singing, dancing and detailed assurances, or perhaps because of them, I drove away later thinking how very fragile our faith must be if we can't just remain sad, scared, confused and doubting for a while. In our fear of unknowing, we leapfrog Holy Saturday and rush the resurrection. We race disconcerted to make meaning and find beauty when there simply is none yet. From dusk on Good Friday to dawn on Easter Sunday, 
God allowed the whole of creation to remain in a state of chaos and despair. Martin Luther dared to suggest, after Good Friday, and I imagine him whispering the words, God's very self lay dead in the grave. Is that possible? Can you imagine it? Nobody the disciples could look to for guidance, no basis for any hope, no meaning. When God goes missing. We know for sure that the family and friends of Jesus were terrified. John says that they were gathered with the door locked for fear of the Jews. John 20, 19. And the apocryphal gospel of Peter says that the authorities were actively hunting Christ's followers down. The disciples were scared, but they were also profoundly confused. Had they been cruelly misled for three years? Had Jesus been merely a prophet and not the Christ at all? What of all the miracles, all the proof? Hadn't he predicted something like this? But surely God would not permit his son to be crucified. For the disciples, these questions would all be answered within a matter of hours in the most glorious way. When we experience similar seasons of doubt and despair, we too may be sure that resurrection is on the way. However, the experience of God's absence is not one to be rushed over, as if it has no value in the Christian life. Quite the contrary. Holy Saturday has been the experience of many of the greatest saints in history, from St John of the Cross to Mother Teresa. When Mother Teresa died in Calcutta at the age of 87, her diaries were collected by Roman Catholic authorities and taken back to Rome. Many were shocked, however, when they read her words and discovered the extreme inner turmoil experienced by the nun and Nobel Peace Laureate, who always seemed so confident of her faith. For instance, we now know that Mother Teresa wrote in 1958, my smile is a great cloak that hides a multitude of pains. People think that my faith, my hope and my love are overflowing and that my intimacy with God and union with him fills my heart. If only they knew. In another letter she wrote, The damned of hell suffer eternal punishment because they experiment with the loss of God. In my own soul I feel the terrible pain of this loss. I feel that God does not want me, that God is not God, and that God does not exist. In response to such revelations, Il Messagero, Rome's popular daily newspaper, said, The real Mother Teresa was one who for one year had visions, and who for the next fifty had doubts, until her death. Commenting on this, one priest described Mother Teresa's doubts as a purification process, adding that it is also a part of sainthood. It's an argument reflecting a long Christian tradition that regards the experience of God's absence not as an enemy of faith, but rather as the very substance of greater faith and intimacy. Martin Luther goes so far as to call God absconditus Deus, literally the God who goes missing. The basis for this is Christ's own experience of forsakenness on the cross, a moment that speaks profoundly about the meaning of God's silence. We want God to answer our prayers through powerful interventions, admits Tim Chester. But in the cross, we recognise by faith the presence of God in weakness. The silence remains silent 
but we see in the cross the hidden God who is with us in our suffering. Christ became the atheist. One of the most shattering stories told by Elie Wiesel about life in Auschwitz darkly communicates this truth of God's absence. One day, when we came back from work, we saw three gallows rearing up in the assembly place. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more disturbed than usual. To hang a young boy in front of thousands of spectators was no light matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was lividly pale, almost calm, biting his lips. The gallows threw its shadow over him. The three victims mounted together onto the chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. But the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence throughout the camp. On the horizon the sun was setting. Then the march past began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged. But the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. For more than half an hour he stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes, and we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive as I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me I heard the same man asking, Where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? Here he is. He's hanging here on this gallows. Any other answer to this devastating question would surely be blasphemy. We are left standing with Wiesel, aghast, doubting God's love, his power, or even his very existence. But, of course, even as we stand and doubt, it dawns uncomfortably on us that this scene of such evil, this scene that indicts our belief in God, also graphically depicts the very crux of our faith. The New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann says that when Christ cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is possible that he was experiencing in that moment a total collapse of faith and meaning. The philosopher Albert Camus said of Christ's suffering, The agony would have been easy if it could have been supported by eternal hope. But for God to be a man, he had to despair. Christ may well have endured the same collapse. Jesus Christ may well have endured the same collapse, despair, doubt, rage and loneliness that Elie Wiesel did on that day in Auschwitz and that thousands have endured ever since. Raniero Cantalamessa, preaching to the papal household, makes this startling possibility explicit. Christ, he says of that cry from the cross, became the atheist, the one without God, so that men might return to God. Is it really possible that at his moment of greatest need, Jesus did not suffer valiantly, defiantly and strategically, but doubted his call and questioned the purpose of his imminent death and the message that he himself had preached? The previous day he had prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. 
on Easter morning, he would appear to Mary, and the tenderness of his love would shine as brightly as the evidence of his power. But in between these two acknowledgments of divine love and power, Jesus dies, and with him dies our hope. Perhaps, therefore, we must point to the boy on the gallows and concur bleakly with Wiesel, saying, There is God, sounding for all the world like bitter atheists, which perhaps at such times we all are. There is love, dying for love, we say. There, hanging like flybait, is the one for whom everything is possible. No reason of man can justify God in a world like this. He must justify himself, and he did so in the cross of his son. Via Negativa the paradox of God's death in Christ and his presence in silence has been explored and experienced by many of the saints, including, as we have seen, Mother Teresa. It's an experience addressed by a school of thought known as apophatic or negative theology, which attempts to describe the nature of God by focusing on what God is not rather than what God is. Why? Because God must, by definition, confound human understanding a reality we experience in so much suffering. One of the foremost advocates of this inverted approach to faith was R.S. Thomas, perhaps the finest Christian poet of the 20th century, who spent most of his life working as a priest in Wales. Ironically, because he lived and ministered in the shadow of the world-shaking Welsh revival, most of Thomas's work explored the experience of God's absence. In Via Negativa, he paints a picture of faith for those whose only experience of God are the echoes, the footprints he has just left. I never thought other than that God is that great absence in our lives, the empty silence within, the place where we go, seeking. Not in hope to arrive or find, he keeps the interstices in our knowledge the darkness between stars. His are the echoes we follow, the footprints he has just left. If that poem rings true for you, then chances are that you have a heightened sense of the transcendence and mystery of God, perhaps because of your own experiences of unanswered prayer. Negative theology has an important place in Christian spirituality, particularly for those seeking to walk with God through intense turmoil. It is, in many ways, the theology of Holy Saturday. However, there are limitations to this highly mystical approach to faith. Although God is undoubtedly beyond our understanding, it is also important that we do not become too esoteric in the way we relate to him, as the Gospels speak loud and clear of a God who can be known even if not fully understood in human terms. In Jesus, we are told, God has been fully revealed, so our faith does not need to be blind. St. Teresa of Avila said that every difficulty in prayer comes from one fatal flaw, that of praying as if God were absent. I believe that negative theology, while helpful, doesn't take fully into account the fact that when God is silent, he is not absent. Surely, he has promised, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. 
At the start of this chapter, I quoted a passage from C.S. Lewis's memoir about his wife's death, in which he described God as a very absent help in times of trouble. However, as he continued to demand explanations for the pain he was enduring, he came to a different conclusion later in the book. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer. But a rather special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question, like, peace, child, you don't understand. Life is often confusing. We may experience the chaos of premature funerals, the inner turmoil endured privately by Mother Teresa, or even the public dereliction of faith suffered by Elie Wiesel in Auschwitz. But God does not leave us alone. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has borne? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 16. In this chapter, we have explored the reality and significance of God's silence as the worst kind of unanswered prayer. We've seen that God sometimes falls silent and appears absent not just in the pages of history, but also in the experience of every believer who longs to grow in his or her faith. We've also seen that it is important to embrace these painful seasons and not to deny them or rush through them. But this begs the question of how to do this. How do we move beyond mere endurance to active engagement with the unanswered prayers of our lives so that we can grow through them in eager anticipation of Easter Sunday? Love that will not let me go. O oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain, and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. This famous hymn was written by George Matheson on the eve of his sister's wedding, his own marriage having been called off when George began to go blind. Thanks for listening. You can email us at allgospelnogerms at stlukesholbeck.org.uk or follow us on Twitter for news and updates where our handle is gospelnogerms. God bless and take care.